substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This way with good intentions Welcome to 200. we're back for another midweek episode I'm joined by my co-host, Josephine Vargis. I should say doctor in front of it every time. But uh, how are you doing? Kia I'm okay. Um, just, uh, you know, uh, going closer towards the end of the year, um, winding up all the work. But, you know, our activism, you know, needs to go on um, in full steam. And I'm trying to do that and trying to keep riding and trying to keep engaging. And that's what we need. So... Yeah, looking forward to the end of the year and another year where we, you know, raise the levels of our action. And, you know, hopefully this is a moment where we can come together, bring together our energies and talents towards a common goal of, you know, liberating working class people and um, oppressed people everywhere. And we're joined by, can we call you a friend of the cast now? I think, I think we can, but you're, you're on here with us a couple of, uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, and yeah, thank you for joining us again, Tamim. Kiara, thank you for having me again. And just for people who haven't, uh, who, who didn't have a, a previous episode. Um... Do hear it. It's a really good episode. The ceasefire <laughs> now episode. <laughs> it's a fantastic episode. Go and listen. I give it five stars. Uh, but where, you, where, where do you come at this from? Yeah, so uh, originally I'm from Palestine. Uh, my parents came from two different places in Palestine, a place called Al-Lid and another place that is called Safad. Their families were expelled from Palestine in 1948 and uh, they ended up in Jordan. Uh, that was where I was born. Then we came to New Zealand in 2014 and I'm based in Narawa here. Fantastic. And yeah, thank you for joining us again um, to... And I, you know, I say this every time we podcast for the last two months uh, to continue talking about the ongoing genocide in in Gaza. We touched it, on it uh, slightly over the weekend, you know, post pause in the fighting, which wasn't really a pause at all. It certainly wasn't humanitarian. There's been some movement on the international stage since then. There's been some, I'd say, slight shifts in in the narrative and the discourse, and there's been a, a marked shift. Uh, and the extent of the atrocities uh, that Israel uh, is is committing in Gaza. I think the first thing to mention is that there's a Security Council vote uh, for an immediate ceasefire. <laughs> you know, like we're past humanitarian pauses at this stage as far as most uh, countries seem to be concerned, or at least in terms of what they are saying on the world stage. You know, they're not actually doing anything. And that was blocked by the, by the US. The US vetoed it. There is a a horrible video of of that uh what do you call it conference that meeting uh of the u.s representative voting against it's i don't know i'll hand it over to the two of you uh to describe what that was like the security council i think it was on saturday last weekend it was not unexpected uh, i think everyone knew uh the outcome beforehand it wasn't the first time that the U.S. used uh, the veto to uh, protect Israel from criticism or, or any resolution against Israel. I think in the last 30 or 40 years, they did it over 50 times. Uh, I think last time I looked it up, it was 56 or something. That was like a couple of years ago because I was writing a piece about it. Then I'm, I, I'm not counting, but I guess 
it's almost there between 50 and 60. And even in the times that a resolution was passed, like including the one that was uh, co-sponsored by New Zealand in 2017 or 16. Uh, but again, it didn't matter because Israel just will do whatever it wants. Uh, it's supported back by the US. And the other thing about this resolution, so even if it didn't pass, it doesn't absolve other countries, including Western countries, from their responsibility because it's easy to say, oh yeah, we went to the Security Council, the US vetoed the resolution and that's it. Well, no, I mean, yes, that happened, but that doesn't mean you cannot do other things. So so, so still that responsibility lies on on the international community and, and you know, country, other countries to step in and to do something about it. Yeah, so that was that was the Security Council. Uh, I saw some comments. Many people are are, say, are saying uh, it failed to do its job. Well, it didn't fail. Uh, that is by design. It that is how that is how it functions, right? The veto is part of the Security Council, uh, so it is failure in the in the overall structure, overall system, uh, the international order. That is that is where the failure failure lies. Yeah, I don't know, Josephine, if you have any yeah, thoughts on so, it. Yeah, as Kyle mentioned, it was quite a horrific video where we have this lone um, representative from the United States very confidently and smugly raising his hand against ceasefire in the face of over 20,000 uh, deaths of which two thirds are women and children, and yet they have the you know audacity to raise their hands. But like you said, this is a historic. It's not something new. This has what this is what the United States has been doing, and you know it also points to the fundamental flaw within the United Nations, which you know many people in the past have shown uh, have actually pointed out. Um, you know, I just I'm just thinking about, for example, uh, Muammar Gaddafi in one of his visits to the U United Nations General Assembly. He takes the United Nations, you know, um, you the different articles, uh, the little booklet containing the uh, the Constitution or the preamble. I don't know what the technical term is, where the articles of the United Nations are listed, and he reads them out. The first article is all countries are equal, and then he he just says. This is not the case. And then he reads one by one each of those articles. And then he proves that none of them are actually upheld by the United Nations. And, you know, what happened over the weekend in terms of, you know, the veto of the United uh, States is a perfect de demonstration of just that. Um, the fact that the will of the majority of the world is not respected uh, in the United Nations, it has actually failed in its purpose, which is to uphold peace and to promote well-being and prosperity across the world. It has failed. In fact, it has been a mechanism that, um, you know, allowed um, these big powers, especially uh, the imperial hegemon, the United United States, to, um, without any sort of um, um, roadblocks or hurdles, to continue its, you know, its rampage of death, destruction and violence across the world, whether it is, you know, Korea, 
whether it is Vietnam, and you know whether it is uh, if you look at the 21st century alone, I mean, it's only been 23 years since the dawn of this new millennium, this new uh, century. And already the United States is responsible for the death of over a million people in the Middle East and um, the displacement of many million more people. And, you know, these these respected, you know, quote unquote, respected global org institutions have failed to actually assure the basic peace and sovereignty. It's also a question of sovereignty, right? Uh, because we are seeing that these great powers are unable to uh, acknowledge the sovereignty of, you know, Asia, countries in Asia, Africa and Latin America, particularly the countries that are resource rich and particularly the countries that are in geopolitically important regions. Another point that I want I observed during that vote is also like the current ambassador of United States to uh, uh, to the United Nations is uh, someone called Linda Thomas Greenfield. Again, you know, it's a uh, a black woman and the person is also the person who raised his hand is i think her deputy i i, I don't know his name um but again an, a person of color um representing you know the horrors and the crimes of the u.s empire and to me it kind of it shows the hollowness in fact of liberal politics which is which is rooted in in capitalism um you know i think that uh, eventually it uh, simply um ends up propagating the opposite of what it espouses so on december 11th it was the you know the day the anniversary the 75th anniversary of the universal declaration of human rights and um this woman who is um ambassador you know ambassador linda thomas greenfield the ambassador from the united states to the united nations she made a great social media post you know espousing how amazing the united nations declaration of human rights is and how important they are to uphold human dignity and just to think that two days up before this or just the day before this they are the sole country in the whole you know united nations security council to raise their hand against ceasefire you know in, in a situation where you know so many children have died and then they have the audacity to speak about the hum uh, universal declaration of human rights it just shows how shallow and hollow these values are in the absence of actual you know commitment to it um, on the ground level so you know, the United States foreign policy is not committed to to human rights. It's not committed to its own people. It's committed to the military industrial complex and their, you know, and their profit interests and also their strategic and geopolitical interests. And that's all that the United States represents. So shame on the United States. Definitely. And so th th it's important just to keep in mind because people uh, wonder, uh, why do uh, Palestinians resort to armed resistance? Because imagine Palestinians going to the Security Council for 50, 60 times over the past 40 years and being blocked by the US every single time. So Palestinians have tried many other ways to liberate their country, to end the occupation, and to restore their their human rights, and none of that happened. None of that worked. So obviously, the armed resistance is 
is a solution, is, is a viable option that many Palestinians believe in. Uh, this is exactly why the resistance factions, Palestinian factions in Gaza, they just don't believe in the Security Council because what's the point? You go there, you get blocked. Uh, so they don't believe in it because it didn't help. It's not because they reject to 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 use diplomatic ways, but it's just because they know the outcome, uh, mm. unlike the government in Ramallah, because, you know, there are two governments. Uh, so the government is Ramallah, in Ramallah is just willing to do anything to keep their their own rule. Uh, and according to the latest poll, which I checked out today, uh, Hamas got maybe 51% of uh, voters in that poll versus 19% to Fatah. Mm-hmm. And this has been a significant increase uh, since the previous poll. Uh, so armed resistance is popular already and getting more popular because turns out people don't like it when they are sh- subjected to genocide, right? Nothing, nothing yeah. surprising here. Uh, so this is the outcome of the international, the failure at the international uh, uh, law and order, international community, and just, you know, not leaving any other option for Palestinians to defend themselves. This is one of those things where it's just rife across the discourse, um, particularly in media um, and from like commentators uh, at the pulpit and from political leaders uh, talking about Israel's right to self-defense completely incorrectly. Like, I believe they don't actually have a right to self-defense under international law, given that they're the occupying force. And in fact, Palestinians have the right to self-defense as an occupied um, population. Uh, And even, even beyond that, Sure, even if they if they weren't occupied and this was this was two states, um, as uh, the discourse is often trying to paint them, they are an invaded country. Like at this point, all bets are off. A genocide is being committed against them. Of course, the people of those territories are going to support an armed resistance against that genocide. It is it is moral to do that. You know, it is. It is one of the only moral actions available to them. Yeah, recently I I saw this video of um, Nelson Mandela uh, visiting Gaza. And, um, you know, it was a news report about him visiting Gaza. The people of Gaza love him. And I think he visited one of the, uh, I think it was Jabalia um, refugee camps. And he goes to the schools. And he also addresses um, the leadership and the communities over there. And he said, you know, we support peaceful means of resistance, but at a point where all the peaceful efforts fail, we will take up arms. And that is what Nelson Mandela said, and that's what he did in 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 South Africa. And the same thing was, you know, um, was um, purported against the ANC by the same powers during South Africa's uh, fight against uh, apartheid. Um, In fact, there were posters saying the ANC are terrorists and we need to eliminate all of them. We need to hang um, Nelson Mandela is what they said. Of course, they imprisoned him for decades, right? And then suddenly, you know, overnight when he was, you know, when the global tide shifted against the apartheid state, he became a hero. So, I mean, there are so many examples of this happening across the world. You know, in Vietnam, 
what happened was was that of course the vietnamese people suffered immense loss of lives in their fight in their resistance against the united states um you know imperialist war uh, on them and on their sovereignty and eventually they won right eventually vietnam one and so yeah th there are so many models across the world about this i just want to mention um there was the deputy high commissioner from the united states visiting um uh, our university university of canterbury recently and myself and you know some people <laughs> went there and he was talking about ukraine and you know the atrocities that um you know you know, it's a very one-sided narrative. Of course, Ukrainian situation is a complex situation. It's not what the West purports it to be. Um, the Western version is just Putin crazy and bad and this happened. But we know that it's way more complex than that. And he he did a one-hour presentation of the same thing, um, of just saying that Putin is crazy and this happened. And so after this, you know, obviously we raised Gaza. And then his response was, um, I'm not an expert in Middle East. I only know about Eastern Europe, so I can't comment on it. Um, and then, okay, so the first one who asked the question was my colleague Jeremy Moses about uh, Gaza. And then I raised my hand next. And then, you know, they said, no more questions about Gaza. And no more questions about Palestine, because that's not the topic. And then I said, sure, let me talk about uh, Ukraine. And then I started <laughs> shooting a number of questions at him, um, asking about, you know, what was the United States' uh, role over there? But what I wanted to say is, you know, we shouldn't allow these people to go around and, you know, um, and uh, spread their propaganda without resisting that, you know. We need to be there showing up and protesting against their false propaganda that um, justifies uh, genocides, wars, sanctions, um, you know, starvation in this case, what's going on in Gaza right now. And yeah, just wanted to add that. Uh, it brings us to the next uh, kind of thing that has happened this week. And it was a, I think it was basically simultaneous. The first of those was New Zealand, Canada, uh, and Australia released a joint statement. It was very like long winded, uh, but was calling for an immediate ceasefire. Um, and that's in direct opposition to uh, the other Five Eyes countries. So these are, you know, security partners, the US and the UK. What was your take on that to meme? Because it said rather a lot more that probably didn't need to be added at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a vague statement, to be honest, but it was a silly progress. So it was a shift from the previous position of these three countries. Uh, if I recall the exact wording, so they asked for so for another pause, uh, like similar to the pause that was three weeks ago. So they asked for a similar pause with a view to extend it, extend it into a permanent ceasefire. So I, th I think it was good. I had many, many observations, notes about it, but I think it was it was a progress. So, you know, we're getting there. Uh, and... I think we need to mention that it wasn't like out of a moral clarity or awakening <laughs> all of a sudden, right? I mean, it's just, it's the public pressure uh, worked. Uh, plus, Israel is stuck right now in Gaza. Uh, the, the ground invasion isn't going well. And I think allies of Israel are trying to save Israel from the problem that they put themselves in. 
uh, yes, there's devastation in Gaza at a, at a humanitarian level, but in terms of the the fighting that is underway, Israel is losing losing the long war uh, or the big war. Uh, so the allies of Israel trying to you know think about it more strategically rather than Netanyahu and his own government with the, with their own short sightedness. So they're trying to give them you know an, an alternative just to save their face. And uh, that is what uh, Joe Biden is doing, because I think he's more committed to Zionism than Netanyahu himself. <laughs> so he, he's saying, well, Netanyahu, I mean, you're going to screw Israel with, with, with what you're doing. Uh, so, yeah, just back to this statement. So I think this statement, it's a progress. Uh, but, yeah, it wasn't done with the best intention for Palestinians. Uh, actually, it didn't mention, like, I had one observation. It mentioned uh, the unrest in these three countries, like they were saying, this war is causing unrest in our own countries, and this is one of the motivations for us to make the, the statement. They mentioned anti-Semitism, they mentioned anti-Arab, they mentioned Islamophobia. They didn't mention anti-Palestinian. Uh, while anti-Palestinian, it intersect with Islamophobia and anti-Arab, but it's, it's distinct. And... Uh, it's important to acknowledge it because you know Palestine is the other side of 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 this this genocide. So I think they they deserve to be mentioned, but, but we know how these things uh, happen. Other things in the statement, just the usual stuff. You know, Israel right to defend defend itself, right to exist, and we condemn Hamas and all, all or you know all that package that you expect to see. They mention they mentioned the the hostages, uh, saying that. In the pause, they would expect more hostages to be uh, relieved, uh, to be released. Uh, of course, they mentioned Israeli hostages, but they didn't mention any of the thousands of Palestinian hostages, detainees, kidnapped, abductees, uh, in in Israeli prisons, uh, because this is part of the narrative that no one wants to include in the West. No one wants to talk about it. Like they keep talking about the the pause that happened three weeks ago and how over 100 uh, Israeli uh, hostages were released. But no one talks about actually it was a, an exchange deal and there were hundreds of Palestinians, including children, who were released in exchange. But people, especially the Western media, they like to focus on the Israeli uh, hostages narrative and just ignore the the other side to it because if if they present this balanced view, people will start asking questions. Oh, hold on. So are you saying there are hundreds of Palestinian ch children uh, in, in Israeli prison? Uh, this will raise many questions, you know, but they're not comfortable with, with tackling them. So they just focus on Palestinians being the, the bad people and Israel is uh, defending itself. Uh, because the minute you mention the, the Palestinian side, then it changes the entire equation, the entire narrative. It's been one of those really weird parts of the discourse where the few times I've seen it mentioned it just becomes a public relations nightmare for whichever Israeli spokesperson is trying to deal with it you know it's like oh so why so these ones got released and then you know 10 times the amount of Palestinian children got released like women and children were, were given like first dibs right um to be released from Israeli prisons and like oh why are these children in your prisons and like oh they were terrorists and, and they're like oh what do they do uh we think they threw a stone and you're just like what the fuck yeah like and like and every single time 
like that I saw it happen in Western media um, with an Israeli spokesperson, the Israeli spokesperson ended up looking like a lunatic, like just like the most horrible person on earth. And this is why like they don't like to bring it up. This is why it's like just off the table um, from Western interview interviewers by and large. And probably since, you know, that the first couple of days, you haven't seen that question asked again. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, that ex prisoner exchange was uh, was quite interesting in terms of, you know, a lot of uh, Palestinian prisoners detained, or I would rather say hostages uh, detained within Israeli prisons with no trial. Some, some of them were there for so many years. These are children. When they, they were taken, they were, you know, in their early childhood or like earlier childhood and they come out as teenagers and they haven't seen their mother in so many years. And there were just so many emotional scenes of reunification. Um, yeah. And also some, you know, some of the women and young women and teenagers and girls uh, who got released, they actually talked about um, the torture inside Israeli prisons and how the torture intensified after October 7. Um, again, these were um, just ignored by Western media. So we don't really, most people in New Zealand wouldn't have heard some of these accounts that, you know, the Palestinian hostages, um, their experiences within Israeli prisons, whereas the other side was shown. But the other aspect of it is... Um, the hostages with Hamas, a lot of them actually were, you know, ha didn't have an antagonistic sort of uh, interaction with Hamas. They were saying goodbye to Hamas. They were smiling, you know, um, with the Hamas fighters. And um, and that also kind of gets glossed over in terms of like uh, a comparison between the treatment of the hostages, which I think, you know, is probably worth discussing. And also, you know, that short ceasefire uh, and what happened afterwards is also another thing that we should discuss. I think, Tamim, um, your insights will be good. But what we saw after that was an intensification of this, you know, the bombardment on Gaza and also intensification and of torture um, and also, you know, the ground invasion expanding um, and and the results of that, including, you know, people being um, held, taken captive, stripped to their underwear and, you know, um, with gun pointed at them in front of, you know, this um, vast, it looks like burial grounds. It was really eerie what we saw, those images. Um, and so what we we saw after that short ceasefire or humanitarian pause or whatever they called it is a much worse resumption of atrocities. And it is really pathetic that these countries like Canada, New Zealand, Australia, again, who lecture the rest of the world, who, you know, on human rights and democracy and all these things, um, taking this fence-sitting stand, I mean, it is an improvement, but it is a pathetic improvement. They continue talking about Israel. Israel's, it's, it's from Israel's perspective that they frame the whole statement, like you said, Tamim. They talk about, again, reiterate Israel's right to re, uh, defend itself. Kyle, like you said, it's questionable within uh, international law whether Israel does have the right to you know, uh, defend itself, given that it is occupying um, land against international law. And also 
they, there's no mention of Palestinians' rights to uh, defend itself. So it's a really pathetic statement. It might be a slight improvement. And like you said, it's not because of a moral clarity. And it's like, it really, it's beyond me how these leaders cannot have moral clarity. This is like Justin Trudeau, a liberal darling, right? Like um, he talks about, you know, he, he wears the rainbow flag and all these things. And where is your... Um, your moral compass? Where is your consistency in, in, in terms of upholding uh, human rights and and human dignity? So, yeah, there's so many developments. And most importantly, what we have seen after the resumption of that pause is much, much far worse kinds of torture, uh, civilian atrocities. And we are hearing numbers of, of people who are injured which are in tens of thousands, like many more times. That, 50,000 uh, 50, at, at last count. Yeah. And many of these people are now permanently, they have permanent injuries, which they carry throughout their lives. The children who haven't been killed but injured, some of them will have to live their lives without limbs. They don't even have food. They don't have a school. So, you know. They don't have a hospital to treat those injuries. Exactly. So these... Um, the atrocities are just getting worse and worse, and it's it's really horrible that we know we, we're not getting more progress from our elected officials and from our um, you know governance institutions. Yeah, I'm actually glad that we we're talking about the prisoners, the Palestinian hostages, prisoners. Use whatever word you want to to use, uh, because this is an important file for Palestinians that is not often talked about in Western media, actually not at all. Uh, before October 7th, I think there were around 10,000 Palestinians in uh, Israeli prisons. And I just want to expand on this. Josephine, you mentioned some of it. There are multi layers to this uh, case to to the to the to the Palestinian prisoners. First of all, Israel is an occupying state, right? It has no legal legitimacy in the occupied territories. If if we want just to stick to the to the to the international law, that is West Bank, Gaza, Jer East Jerusalem, right? I mean, for us Palestinians, the entire thing is occupied. But I just mm -hmm. want to focus on on, on these areas. Uh, so. Israeli courts, they don't have legitimacy in these areas. However, these prisoners, most of them actually, they go through these courts uh, under uh, the military rule, which is- yeah, They go through the military courts, yeah, not, yeah. not the civil courts. No, no, no. Yeah. And this is where the apartheid framework comes handy because, you know, if you, if you send them to if you send them to different court, then basically you are you are applying two rules for your for the people who fall fall under uh, fall under your regime. But anyway, so these ten thousand people just before October seventh, I think over one thousand of them they were detained until under what is called administrative uh, detention. Administrative detention is an, an Israeli term for people just being kidnapped with no trial with no charge nothing so someone so the, they will send the army they will take you in the middle of night from your home terrorize the entire neighborhood your family in front of your children your family uh, uh, partner everyone they will take you 
throw you in a, in a, in a, in a prison without telling you what you did, nothing, no charge, no trial. You will not see a court at all. Some people have been serving, uh, in, in, sitting in the prisons for years without knowing what they did, imagine. So over 1,000 of, of these 10,000 actually were like this. And the other 9,000 who were trialed, as you mentioned, Kyle, some of them, they just threw a, sto threw a stone uh, at the checkpoint next to their school. You know, having a, a checkpoint, an army checkpoint next to your school is intimidating. And, and you know, they're the occupation. And you see them terrorizing your people. And if you are a teenager, if you're a child, it's very justified that actually you will feel you know angry about them, and if there was a tension and you throw us throw a stone at them, it's not it's not a crime. But for Israel, this is a massive crime, and they will take you, they throw you in a in a, in a jail. So yes, this I, I don't know I don't have the exact numbers, but this is a large percentage of of these people why they ended up in Israeli prison. So the entire system is illegitimate. Uh, now, since October 7th, Israel went on a spree of killing in West Bank and arresting people. And they kidnapped almost 4,000 people since October 7th. That is, I don't know, maybe 15 times the Israeli hostages. No one talks about it. Uh, some of them were released, some of them still sitting in the prisons, but no one knows about it because since October 7th, Israel... Uh, applied some punishment against all these Palestinian uh, prisoners and no one can communicate to, with them. So until we saw the released prisoners uh, during the temporary pause, no one knew since October 7th what they were doing. But everyone expected that they, will, they were going under uh, through uh, torture and extreme measures, uh, but no visits, no comms, no phones, nothing between them and the external world. Uh, so, so it is. It is a. It is a massive issue for Palestinians. Uh, there's not a single home or or family in occupied Palestine who didn't have a single person going through that process of of being persecuted or charged or uh, put in in the in in Israeli prison. So it is a massive issue for Palestinians, and. There, there is a there is a history of exchange deals between resistance factions, Palestinian factions, and Israel, where Palestinians they will they will take a hostage or or, or kidnap an Israeli soldier most of the time and arrange for that exchange deal with Israel. So there is really like I think last one was massive with where uh, Hamas they uh, took one Israeli soldier as a hostage, and eventually after a few years they they uh, they stuck, uh, struck a deal, exchange deal, where they had over 1,000 Palestinians released in, in exchange of that person. So for Pal Palestinians, they know this is a viable option because there, there was no other way to deal with, with, the, with the prisoners situation in, in Israel. So since the beginning of this entire situation, since October 7, Palestinians were clear that if you want the hostages, then let's do an exchange because we don't want these people. The only reason that they took them is to exchange them for for you know for for the rest of the for, of the Palestinians sitting in in the Israeli prisons. Uh, but Israel thought maybe by force they could release the Israeli hostages without releasing any Palestinian. It didn't work out, so they went into that uh, temporary pause. And 
an exchange deal was was uh, happened. Uh, it happened in stages. So they said, okay, we release the children, women. You will release uh, children, children of women. And I, I think we don't have exact information, uh, but I think they reached a point where they released all of the uh, women and children in Gaza from Gaza, the Israeli women and children in Gaza. Uh, I'm not, I'm not exact. I think they're still talking about few who are still there, but I, I cannot be. No one can be sure because there isn't reliable information being released from either side, or at least from the Palestinian side. And I think the critical point at the moment is the soldiers. So for the Palestinian factions, because it's not just Hamas, so I'm talking about factions, because it's more than one uh, party that is involved in the process. The bulk of the hostages that they have in their hands, they are comba combatants at the moment. And for Palestinians to have soldiers or, or fighters or combatants in their hand, this is big. And they were clear with Israel, if you want these people released, you have to release everyone in your presence, all of the Palestinians. So for Netanyahu, this is a this is you know a big blow, and that's why he's saying, no, I'm not going to do this. And you mentioned Josephine the intensification of the of the of the aggression of the assault on Gaza. Uh, one of the explanations to it is because Israel they know that they will return back to the negotiation table, but they want to hit Palestinians hard in order to extract uh, a cheaper price. To release their prisoners, so they're trying, you know, to to squeeze Palestinians as much as they can, and when they eventually negotiate for for an exchange, or it might be happening now, but you know, who knows? So they're trying to just to come up with the with the best outcomes possible uh, through the use of of power and torture and killing and uh, uh, starving people and uh, preventing them from receiving healthcare aid and all these things. It's just you know. A war a crime on top of a war a crime. It's just, it just, it, it, it's, it's massive. Really, it's crazy. Yeah, and that brings us to the second thing that happened midweek, uh, which was once the Security Council, uh, quote unquote, failed to uphold peace uh, with that that US veto, a motion was brought to the General Assembly. Um, I, I think a stronger motion than the one that occurred a couple of weeks ago. Like it was a directive. Uh, to call for an immediate ceasefire and that just that passed even more overwhelmingly than the softer terms uh, from a couple of weeks ago I think only 10 countries voted against it uh, obviously US and Israel are in there um, yeah. a range of other small countries and 14 I think uh, abstained um, when, again 23. one you'd expect 23 mm. Um, yeah, some that you'd expect there as well. And this, like, if it shows anything at all, it's that public opinion in these countries and, you, you know, the, the majority of the planet is turning very strongly against uh, US leadership on this. And I, and I do say US leadership because, you know, this is much their war, if not more so than Israel's, given the, it would be impossible uh, for this to be occurring without U.S. support, U.S. U.S. weapons, U.S. money, and the threat of U.S. military aggression if someone should try to stop it. Yeah, actually, people say Israel controls the U.S., but that's wrong. The U.S. controls Israel, and yeah, this is this is what we're seeing. So it's basically when we say support for Israel, we're talking about the U.S., that's it. 
Yeah, so I've got the list of the countries that voted against, uh, if, if anyone's interested. So that's Austria, Czech Republic, Guatemala, Israel, Liberia, Micronesia, Nauru, Papua New Guinea, Paraguay, and the United States. So, I mean, if you want to know which countries have U.S. puppet governments in place, this would probably be a good indication of that. And, you know... Um, or are being squeezed by the U.S. in other ways. I want to be pretty yeah, clear about that. Sure, yeah. It could be uh, pressure. It could be through, you know, aid with strings attached and stuff like that. So there are many pressure tactics that the imperial hegemon has been using for the last 70, um, 75 years or so. Um, so, yeah. And then the countries that abstained include um, Ukraine, United Kingdom, Germany, Italy, Hungary, Netherlands um, are some of the key countries there. So, and that is a total of 23 countries, whereas um yeah, even less countries voted against. And we are seeing 153 countries. That's huge voting in favor of a ceasefire. And if you remember at the beginning of, you know, the bombardment and siege of Gaza, there was in October, the first or second week, a UNGA vote. And it was 123 countries that voted in favor of the ceasefire then. And now it has increased by 30 entire countries, 153. This is a, you know, huge uh, improvement. And, you know, everyone who has been on the streets um, or, uh, you know, furthering the cause through social media or whatever means they have, this is the result of that effort. And we continue um, our struggle. Yeah, correct. There was one thing interesting about that vote. Uh, I think I saw the CNN framing it as it was led by Islamic, Islamic and Arab countries, uh, because they love to put the to position the issue of Palestine as ah, this is mostly Arab and Islamic countries, but you know, Islamic and Arab countries they just I don't know, 52 countries, while the countries that voted yes were 150. 250 so three times you know the arab and islamic countries so it wasn't islamic and arab countries it was a uh, the entire world apart from the us and small islands here and there uh, so it's obvious there's there's an overwhelming uh, support for that ceasefire and yes it's definitely uh, motivated by the overwhelming uh, public support in all these countries and the pr pressure on on their own governments uh, I think the majority of the population across the world, I mean, in, in every single poll that I saw from around the world, uh, the the more support for a ceasefire was than no no ceasefire. We had our own version of that in the poll that we talked about in the previous podcast, 60% uh, to 12% or something, yes versus no. Uh, and, you know, we're in Western countries, so imagine what, what would it be in non-Western countries? Uh, this is one thing. The other thing is the support for for the Palestinian side is skyrocketing in the younger generations, even in the in Western countries. I blame TikTok. Yeah, hence TikTok. You know, and and the the ban on TikTok on on <laughs> uh, from you know some weird uh, uh, writers. Uh, but anyway, uh, it just it's just I think these. New generations, they see the fact, the, it's in front of their eyes. They don't watch uh, CNN, BBC, they don't care, you know. So They, they still have a moral supposed, code. 
Correct. Yes. So they're not exposed. Yeah, they're not, not exposed to these uh, Western biased media. Uh, and in the last 20 years, we saw many devastating wars against Gaza. So the entire world is shocked over and over uh, with the with the with the aggression that they see from the Israeli side. So everyone is like, you know, we know when, when they hear the word Israel, they just imagine war crimes happening. Uh, so, yeah. This was behind the uh, UN General uh, Assembly. On the same day, we saw a joint statement from New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was, yeah, it was in line with the, with the with the resolution coming from the General Assembly. Uh, I think we talked about it, right? Yes. Yeah, we talked about <laughs> it. But again, you know, like there are so many, um, con, you know. We've, we've, we're familiar with uh, conspiracy theorists and that who are who think about the UN as this you know as this um, some sort of weird institution um, that you know uh, doesn't bode well any power. for the world. They yeah. have any power you know, whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, but you know you 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 can see why some people would believe that if you look at the history of the United Nations, it's been an utter failure. So, uh, being distrustful of it is not um, you know unreasonable position to take. You know, well, and, yeah, being yeah. distrustful of it isn't unreasonable, but thinking that it can actually do anything is <laughs> is a, is an unreasonable. Yeah, well, well I mean, because the UN people think the UN is like a, a separate entity, but the UN is no entity. The UN is just the world, the the countries in in the world, and yeah. even the voting that happens at the UN level, it's as as you mentioned, like. It depends on the relationship. Like if you have good relationship with the country being advantaged by the vote, then you will vote with yes, otherwise with no. Like in my mind, Ukraine abstained because they get supported, they get supported from the US. So they didn't want, you know, it was maybe a, a big ask to uh, to vote by no. So they chose to abstain just to, just to, uh, in order not, in order not to annoy uh, the US, right? Because they're trying to get some help. That's in my opinion. But they're, they're, no, you're, you're correct. Yeah, yeah. They're in direct yeah. competition with Israel for US arms right now. Like this is yeah. being played out in the in domestic politics in the US. Yeah. yeah. So, so that is the UN. It's not a separate entity. It's just a, a collection of the entire world and just making decisions based on their own politics and what works for them. Yeah. And that's a really important point, uh, Tamim, because it also kind of we, the United Nations reproduces the power structures that exist uh, in the world outside the United Nations. And so, like, um, if you look at the development models from the United Nations, for example, they're dominated by the Western model of development, which is like neo liberal capitalism entrepreneurship or some sort of like you know uh, capitalism is a solution for everything um you know cutting down on the state and so forth and this this sort of development gets you know pushed down um throats of global south nations and it has failed and it has enabled the continued extraction of resources and labor from our countries uh but at the same time it's it's quite unprecedented in terms of um what's going on in palestine at the moment I don't think there has been a conflict where more UN officials have lost lives. So there's a record number of United Nations um, workers, employees losing lives in, in Palestine, in Gaza. Um, the last time I looked at it, it was in the 60s. I don't know. It, it must have increased now. Um, but something. Yeah. So it's like there's no 
there's no value for even the United Nations um, and their employees. And so, like, again, coming back to your point, Kyle, you know, it's 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 OK to have mistrust or, you know, to, to not uh, have any hope in this institution. But, you know, look at it. It's completely powerless. Like so many of its own people have died and it, it's not been able to stop this this, you know, a senseless slaughter. It hasn't even been able to name the killers um, often. Like, I don't think the head of the UN, Antonio Guterres, has has once said, um, you know, UN staff killed by Israel. You know, he's just say, oh, sadly, some UN staff has lost their lives. Yeah, who, 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 who stole them? Like, <laughs> who, where, did you find them later? Like, no, yeah. like, and... I, one of the, the huge shifts, as we kind of, I'll, I'll kind of segue us into talking about the um, the general response stuff. Now we've got the the geopolitics of it out of the way, but what, this huge um, change in the way people are discussing that at an NGO level happened in the last week, which is Doctors Without Borders directly started saying the IDF is killing our stuff. You know, they they are they are fucking done with it. Um, and that's after almost two months of just saying, oh, someone died, you know, like, oh, you know, there was a bombing and uh, a couple of doctors died. They're, they're now directly naming the IDF um, as the people causing the or people murdering um, mm. doctors and medical staff. And I don't think that's ever really happened in this kind of situation before. Like, and that, you know, it should have been untenable on, on day one you know then none, none of this stuff should have it shouldn't be surprising you know there shouldn't be like obviously i can't believe this happened but that's the kind of world we live in this is a huge shift um in the way that uh it is being discussed um and some of that's even leaking into western media now because they'll have a person on from one of the organizations and they'll just be totally fucked they'll just be fucking crying on camera like i think there's a guy from uh Anwa. UNRWA, he just, he just broke down, you know, like, uh, there's another, it happened with a guy, UN, uh, what's the ch children's organization? UNICEF. UNICEF. Yeah, same, same kind of thing. They just like, one in, like, only one in nine people in Gaza is eating every day. You know, that, that's utterly horrific. You know, we talked about, um, it's not because of any moral clarity. Um, that these countries are necessarily voting uh, for a ceasefire. It's about public pressure. But my God, like how you can see what is happening there and and not just be immediately affected on a human level. Yeah, you'd have to be a monster. Like how, how people do not have moral clarity of the issue at this point. You know, some of us had it very early on. It was very, very fucking clear. But, you know, you understand like that the... Uh, the lobby um, and the the people doing the propaganda and the media narratives um, and a lack of knowledge about the situation all feed into, uh, if nothing else, confusion among the general public. And, you know, I accept that. Like, that is uh, an understandable place for people viewing this these atrocities to, to be in. We're like, oh, I'm not quite sure yet. We were well past that point a long time ago. And... Even the people who, even the organizations now, 
who, you know, who rely on funding from, from these big countries. Um, you know, a lot of this money comes out of the US. It's just the, the fact of it are now feeling that they are forced to speak out about it because they certainly weren't two or three weeks ago. And that in and of itself should be evidence enough that this is among the worst atrocities that has happened. I don't, I don't even know, like, in, in human history, like I'm I'm pretty happy to put it alongside that at this point. You know, there's been some I, I understand for anyone fucking tut tutting, uh, that there have been some pretty awful fucking things out there in the world. This is up there at this point. This is a captive population. They've had more bombs dropped on them in, in a in a smaller area than I think almost anywhere ever in human history. When like I said earlier, only one in nine is eating every day. Uh, they are actively targeting doctors, uh, health workers, uh, destroying hospitals so that there's nowhere to uh, treat injuries, destroying schools. They cut off all water, electricity, and food supplies like day one, and we're two months in. And it's just, and then <laughs> on top of that, they're rampaging around the ruins of Gaza, kidnapping people, civilians, stripping them. Uh, just in the last couple of days, there has been a report of a people sheltering in a UN school. This is out of Al Jazeera. Um, they came in, kidnapped all the men, stripped them, and then executed the women and children. Like, I don't, I don't know the last time that happened so clearly, so out there in the world, so obviously. Like, there's just no way that this should be allowed to happen. But this is the world we fucking live in. Sorry, that got darker than I wanted it to. <sighs> Um, yeah, I, I just uh, want to remember in this moment, Refat, you know, uh, the brilliant writer, um, scholar, um, and I would call him a citizen journalist as well, of uh, reporting from Gaza, uh, passed away, um, killed by IDF. Um, I, his last tweet was this, the Democratic Party and Biden are responsible for the Gaza genocide perpetrated by Israel. And, you know, what he highlights here is, you know, the false dichotomy that exists in the United States between the two parties, that one is a lesser evil. It's really difficult to, you know, make any distinction at this point or even before this. Right. Um, uh, Joe Biden was one of the key proponents of the Iraq war. He's the one who kind of like whipped the rest of uh, even the, you know, uh, fence sitting Democrats to vote in favor of uh, the Iraq war. So he has a history of supporting uh, United States um, death dance or whatever you call it, you know, at this point, it's a death dance. It's a globe spanning death dance. And 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 for, for, for what ends, right? Are the common people in the United States benefiting from this? No, they're not. Like homelessness is at a horrific level over there. There is a um, you know, uh, opioid crisis that has impacted white working class people. Uh, the drug crisis has been, you know, um, ravaging the black communities over there. This is the largest carceral state in the world with over 2 million people in prisons. The prisons are privatized, which means imprisoning people, it brings profits uh, for this country. So it's not just on the international scale that the United States is broken and horrible and violent. It's also violent and broken and horrible to its own people on the margins of society. So I don't know, you know, 
the world, if we want to see a better day in this world, we need to dismantle the military industrial complex in the West, uh, the head of which is the United States of America. And there is no two ways about it. And, um, you know, going back to Che Guevara, he says, um, in order to destroy imperialism, we need to identify its head, which is none other than the United States. And if you look at, you know, what's going on, that United States, United Nations Security Council vote, uh, the lone hand that raises against, you know, civilian uh, debts being stopped was the United States. And again, when it comes to Cuba and its embargo against Cuba, the entire world has changed its views on it. Like all European countries who supported the United States in the beginning are now against the Cuban embargo. But there are two countries that always block the lifting of the embargo, that is the United States and Israel. So this this system that, you know, is um, is just driven not by the democratic interests of people in the United States. They are victimized by this profit-driven system. You know, uh, the people across the world are being victimized by the system. We need to dismantle it uh, for the benefit of the people in the United States and across the world. So, yeah, I just think that Refat's uh, insight, that last insight that he gave uh, before he was martyred is so invaluable. And we must think about the fact that this dichotomy of, you know, a shit and shit light, it doesn't exist. It's all shit. Uh, yeah, I, I want to go back to the change in narrative. Uh, it's partially because of the overwhelming truth that people can see it. We're not talking about a genocide that is happening in somewhere that is remote and we're just reading about it one month later we are following people on social media who are tweeting and posting it through it uh, we are following people who are who have been see, saying you know uh, we don't have food to eat we we there's nothing that to buy we're running out of water uh, next day we are hearing the tanks approaching the following day the tanks are on my street right now we don't know what to do then they will go offline for a few days uh, some of them will come back, some of them will never come back because you know they were killed eventually during that period. And some of them who came back, like I was reading a, a, an account of someone who I'm following from Gaza. So he reported today in the morning, our morning New Zealand time, he said uh, he was taken by the his entire family and his entire building. They were taken by the Israeli army because the tanks arrived at their own neighborhood. And uh, they kept them hostages for some time, and he was talking about his own account. So they took him. They asked him, uh, "Where do you work? Your name, etc." About everything. Then they put on his waist uh, explosive uh, belt, and they tied him with a rope. They took him to a place where they found an entrance for a tunnel. And the troops, they were afraid of going down just in case if it was a booby trap. So they wanted to use that that person, active, you know, person on Twitter who I'm following. So they wanted him to go down in the tunnel and they wanted him to keep going down until they pull him. So he's, they said, keep going down until we pull you from the with the rope, then you come back. He refused. They threatened him to execute his family. And eventually they pushed him, so he fell into the 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 tunnel. He had no other option, so he went he went going down. Oh, they put on his head a camera because they wanted to see what is in there, 
And the plan was if they spotted any resistance fighters, they would have detonated, exploded him in the, in the tunnel. So he kept walking for 40 meters. Luckily, there was no one there. Then they pulled him back and he was released. So he survived, but he went through this experience. And we're hearing from that person himself. It's not a, it's not something that we're reading about in a newspaper or, or in a history book. We're writing, we're, we're hearing about it from the person who experienced it the following day, it just happened to him yesterday. And there's a, a, a big number of these uh, accounts uh, uh, of people who are victims who are being uh, treated in this way, used as, as human shields. And it's always projection. Tortured. It's always a projection. Yes, exactly. Uh, so this is one of the reasons uh, there's a big change in the in the in the narrative because people can see these these stories. Uh, the truth is too big to be ignored, even by the mainstream media. So we, we're seeing a shift in the in the news here in New Zealand as well. Uh, like just you know, open any random website, and you can see now some news about what's happening in Gaza. It's, there's a still uh, wrong framing or misleading framing. Yeah, I was going to say, I it, I, yeah, I'm not, it's much better than before, to be honest. I'm not going to give anything to New Zealand media on this. I, I think that's okay. that's a shift from Reuters and AP that we're mostly seeing because right. they're, but most of, the, most of the reporting here is still just uh, syndicated. And then, you know, whenever we actually see uh, New Zealand experts, I, very, I gave a very sarcastic uh, quote marks for people who can't see the video. It is the worst Israeli propaganda imaginable. Um, so, yeah, but, and, and yet, yeah, as you say, even in, in media in New Zealand, we are seeing a shift there. Um, but I think it's because it's a global shift and a significant one. Um, I think Reuters a couple of weeks ago, um, post-investigation also said uh, our journalist was killed by the IDF after a month and a half investigation. Everyone knew that the IDF had killed this guy. Um, because they were shot by the IDF, uh, but they they named him as well. Um, you know that they, they have too many people on the ground seeing this stuff, um, like having to interact directly with Israeli forces. And you know there are a number of videos out there of, and and I hate that I have to say this, but non-Palestinian journalists being shot at by the IDF for people to ignore anymore. You know, sometimes it's live on a live stream when it's like coming through from CNN or something like, you know, this isn't just like, oh, these are just fakes. You know, this is just fake news. No, but like, you know, these are um, these are Western journalists. And, and but we've always known that Israel has no problem with uh, killing journalists no matter where they're from. But I think that, too, has been a wake up call uh, from the people who have until now been peddling the propaganda directly from IDF spokespeople. Yeah, and uh, just on that, because people say uh, we can't trust uh, Palestinian sources, but guess what? I mean, if let's say there are two sides, there's just one side who's who's asking for international media to come in, which is the Palestinian side, including Hamas, and there's the Israeli side who's uh, blocking uh, international media from going to Gaza. So, you know, just think about it. Just one side wants the media to come in. The other side doesn't want them to come in. So there's obvious something. Thing Joe Biden. On. Joe yeah. Biden said from the podium, one of the, pro he, he said this live, didn't he? This wasn't like, this wasn't like just in recorded remarks. I'm pretty sure he said this like on video that one of the possible problems 
with a with the original humanitarian pause was journalists might get in um and report what they found to the world just think like anyone who has any doubt about what about what's going on here or, or what the sides are you know think about what that means think about the implications of the people who are supporting what israel are doing saying that saying that about a a free press getting the like you know a barely free press like saying that about the press who has been until now uh laundering their propaganda getting the opportunity to see what had happened in northern gaza the united states and israel do not want that and it was a risk that they took into account with the pause i think this is something you kyle mentioned before that yes it is said that our media they still uh report a direct statement from the idf and their spokesperson and israeli politicians but you know what even even in doing that they don't report on the things that actually we would like people to hear like coming straight from the idf spokesperson or politicians because they're really horrible things that i think they will be they will be good enough for people to hear like i said yeah. i was uh, reading in one of the israeli newspaper or the other day they were talking about the photos of the uh, stripped uh, palestinians who are being detained in gaza and the the shock that these photos created around the world so literally in in the times of israel they were talking about a, a, a statement in a press release uh, uh sorry press conference by the spokesperson of the idf he was saying uh, i mean we will investigate what happened and uh, the photos uh, there was no point in distributing the photos so moving forward we will not distribute them because they created they're creating a negative impact he wasn't talking about not doing that practice he was saying about not sharing the photos yeah the pr yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. So, 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 so i'm more than happy for that statement to be you know uh, uh, reported on in the media um, because you know you need, another, people need to hear it there was another statement from uh, some pro israel media or israeli media that 10 to 15% of those people stripped down are uh, on their knees they were uh, hamas affiliated to uh, hamas so Whatever what that, that proves as what that actually proves is that 85% of those were civilians right so yeah you're right if we actually report what they say um it, it's pretty bad for them it's really bad yeah. for them yeah people uh, always is. like you know when we, we get into it on social media with propagandists and they're like, oh you're so biased or like uh you're just looking at the fake news no look like i take this shit really seriously a lot of the information that i get about what's happening in gaza comes from israeli media sources it comes it comes from like israeli news um and it comes from their spokespeople showing up on their national television programs and saying the most obscene shit imaginable the whole line has been uh, hamas is isis but look at this is exactly a recreation of some of the isis scenes we've seen being carried out in the open you know videoed by idf and put out there by idf and you know it it also shows how ignorant people are because hamas is not isis on the one hand they're saying um iran is supporting hamas and iran and isis are the biggest mortal enemies of each other 
Um, not only that, the United States and Israel actually support, strategically support ISIS in Syria because ISIS is one of the alliance fighters fighting, you know, the moderate rebels trying to overthrow Assad. So actually the opposite is true. IDF is ISIS, or at least it is more close to ISIS. It, it, it openly, there was it's an worse, idea. worse than ISIS. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one of the former IDF chiefs, I think, um, or one of the intelligence heads of Mossad was interviewed, I think, a few years ago by, um, what's his name, Mahdi Hassan, and he admits that they treated al-Qaeda fighters in Israeli hospitals um, in the Syrian border. And so it's like they are actually actively, you know, actually and on the record supporting al-Qaeda and ISIS. And they're saying Hamas is ISIS. This is just, it doesn't make any sense. Like a person with a basic literacy of the issues in, in the Middle East won't say such a blunder. But these people aren't from, you know, most of people uh, talking about this and supporting this are not from there. And they don't know anything about the geopolitics in the region. And so this propaganda flies. It's pathetic. Correct. And just as, as an experiment, just Go to Twitter and look at any of the, uh, let's say, tweets that highlighting one of these atrocities, like, you know, photos of a strip Palestinians or something. Look at one of the posts that went viral and check, check the, the replies from uh, the Israeli side. Half of them will be denying it. The other half will be actually telling you why it's it's justified justified. So you know, just it's it's it just say anything and something will stick eventually. But there are people who are justifying it and thinking actually this is this is bad and we should do this. And there's this entire TikToks coming from the IDF themselves that just filming them doing the the most. Uh, vile acts and you can imagine just them filming them and uh, filming themselves doing it releasing it in TikTok without shame and not just proud of doing it so you can't deny it it just it just the temerity of people in the United States and like Israel and wherever else New Zealand perhaps uh them saying oh it's like because of Chinese propaganda app, they're just spreading propaganda and like pro-Palestine propaganda. No, mates, it's you know, it's the fucking soldiers. You know, it's the soldiers and it's Israeli citizens like doing blackface. Um, and it's like just random Israeli citizens like popping into TikTok to mm -hmm. say the most insane things, man. Like these are like we have we have seen like the face of the 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 extreme reactionary politics of Israel. Um, I think I saw um, from Norm Finkelstein uh, just in the last couple of days, he was on Piers Morgan, and he was saying, it's not just like this far right government that they have, you know, Israeli citizens voted for that. And most Israeli citizens currently want the IDF to sh show less restraint in Gaza. It's it's a nightmare, and it's of their own making. Yeah, in a, in a poll the other day, I think just a few days ago in Israel, only like one to two percent of Israelis thought the, the, that the IDF was uh, uh, using more power than it was meant to do, but the other ninety-eight percent were between saying it's either right or actually the IDF was showing restraint. In, in, in the assault on Gaza. That's so disgusting. It, it is horrific, yes. I just, I, you know, in my heart of my hearts, I just wish that was not the case. I wish that 
you know, the civilians in Israel had, you know, there were more opposition to this at these atrocities. But these numbers, it's just um, painting a very eerie picture for me. Uh, you know, there's mass consensus for uh, what so many experts have described as a genocide. So this is really dark and eerie what's going on. I mean, a, a convicted terrorist is like the leader of the party that's propping up Likud. Like Ben Gavir is was convicted of terrorism, you know, um, and he's out there arming West Bank settlers to do what they're doing in the West Bank right now. But of course, we never talk about that in Western media either. Like West Bank's not even in this fucking conversation. And it is getting worse and worse there every day. Like they're yeah. going to, if they could do to, do to the West Bank what they're doing to Gaza, they will. If they can, if they think they can get away with it, they're going to do it. Yeah, th there's no reason to stop at Gaza, right? I mean, they because for them this is the the ideal situation where they just get rid of the entire Palestinian population. They said on day and one, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. So, so if they get away with with Gaza, then definitely they would do it in uh, West Bank, and they will do it in South Lebanon and just get rid of Hezbollah for once and for all, right? I mean, th there would be nothing that will stop them. And they're being encouraged to do that. The uh, the government was giving civilians big big rifles, automatic rifles and guns, distributing it yeah, among that was settlers. Being that was being yeah. It was so it's not only what they want, but they're actually actively uh, supporting it, not just through words, but also by giving deadly weapons to settlers and Israeli citizens. So, yeah, pretty bad. And I just want to also just mention the there's a false sense of, you know, this is a right wing government and that's why this is the problem. Um, you know, Netanyahu is the problem here. And if the opposition came into power, maybe. So I've heard that from a number of liberals in the West. I've heard that even from, you know, the fallen hero, uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, the, you know, he says the right wing uh, Likud party and so forth. And um, all, all of this aligns with Alan Dershowitz, by the way, who's also saying this in the last couple of days, you know, like uh, arch, arch neocon. Um, mm. and, he, and he was also saying, which is, is probably a signal of a lot of things, actually. He was saying Netanyahu has to go, you know, and, and he was trying to make these same kind of claims. Yeah, I mean, th this is part of uh, saving Israel. So uh, there's there's now a consensus that uh, the problem is Netanyahu. And if we get rid of Netanyahu, then basically we are uh, pr saving Israel from... I mean, he's done. This he's fucking done. This is a trap that they walked right into it. Yeah, but recently I saw the opposition leader, the leader of the opposition, actually, yes. he said, Lapid. he said, okay, yeah, Lapid, um, he actually says that he supports the idea of action. He doesn't ha uh, support the, the way in which Netanyahu handled it, but he doesn't oppose the current siege of Gaza and the actions of the idea. Oh, but, so, but, but, so but he was the prime minister before Netanyahu. So, you know, he, he like, and he personally led like different rounds, rounds of aggression against Gaza. So, so they're all the same thing. It's like you, you were talking about the US, like light shit and shit. <laughs> Basically all of the, all of the Zionists, they are like this and there's no light uh, Zionism or something. I keep talking, this, saying this is story, like the, the, for the first 30 years in the Israel history, it was led by socialist labor movement, you know, left wing, and it committed Nakba. 
so th and that was left. So imagine now we're, we're not in left, we're not in center, we are not even in right, we're in, in far right on this entire spectrum that is already on the right. So it just, you know, people cannot just imagine how how extreme right we are at the moment in, in, in the Israeli government. Yeah, I think um, we've covered a lot of stuff um, and I want to keep this within time. I think we're already beyond time. There's so much more that we could talk about. Uh, but I think just for the end of this episode, Tamim, if you wanted to talk about what what hope you see for Gaza. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it, it looks dark, very dark, uh, but there's a still work to do. And we need to keep pushing for the ceasefire that we have been asking for, the immediate ceasefire, ignoring all this development and UNGA and the statements we were hearing about, because yes, they are talking about ceasefire, but on the ground, it's not happening yet. So we just need to continue pushing. And we know it works, that pushing works, because without that pressure, nothing would have changed so far. So we're seeing a change. Uh, it's still being talked about, but we want to keep pushing until it happens on the ground. Uh, this is the absolute next step that should happen. Uh, we need to stop the killing, then everything else can can come along. Uh, we want to focus on the big picture as well. Uh, so the ceasefire is part of the big big picture where eventually we want the occupation to end. Uh, so when people think about the ceasefire as the immediate requirement, they really need to picture this part of the occupation. Otherwise, we'll just getting keep. Uh, we will get stuck in this cycle of. Uh, genocide, then a slow yeah. killing, then genocide, then a slow killing. So we want really to end all of this. Uh, so there's there's definitely hope. And I think we are going in the right direction in terms of public pressure and mm -hmm. just need to keep going. I know it, it gets hard. Uh, this has been going on for two months, but imagine how hard it is for people on the ground in Gaza. So just thinking about what they go through, it should give us uh this massive energy to make a change and to push harder than before until we stop that killing. Uh, then yeah, hopefully a better future will will come along. Um, I just want to conclude uh, by just quoting uh, Leila Khalid, um, who is from you know a revolutionary leader of the population. Uh, sorry, of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Uh, which is a socialist uh, revolutionary organization formed in the 60s. Um, she says, if we continue to struggle, we will be free. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thank you, Josephine, for uh, coming in as a co-host. Uh, and thank you to Mim for joining us again uh, to share your thoughts. That's been another episode of 1 of 300, everyone. It's so important that you're sharing uh, this alternative media. We're not really getting much good stuff anywhere else. I'm sorry to say, I wish we were. I, I wish that uh, we weren't uh, among the only people having this conversation in, in Aotearoa, but so it goes. Uh, share this around, let people know that there are other viewpoints out there. Yeah, and other than that, we'll, we'll catch you on the weekend for our regular current events. Catch you next week. If artifices are denied Live in a pointless life But I'm learning all your lessons Fucking politics There's no distinction The words are now It's paid with good intentions And I'll admit that I'm A 
And lots to want to say When they could just as a cost we ought to stay Cause I live amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking race 